8.15 in the morning. On the other line was one of our church members, a friend of mine, who was calling to tell me that a guy from our church he was with was hit by a car while he was riding his bike. He also told me that he had sustained severe injuries to his head and to his back. He was unable to move and he had to be airlifted to USC Medical Center in Los Angeles. And immediately my heart sank. I started thinking about what he was going through and what had happened to him and how this could have happened. And I felt so much anguish at that very moment. You know, my heart was, was grieved for him and what he was going through and what his family may be experiencing. And I thought about his wife and the turmoil and stress that she must have been going through right at that moment. And I thought about Kevin and the pain, uncertainty, and despair he must have been experiencing when he got hit by a car going 55 miles an hour on Sierra Highway. When tragedy strikes, we often don't know what to do, what to think, and who to turn to. The same is true for any kind of suffering, really, whether it be a trial, whether it be a hardship, or some kind of injustice that we may experience. But we need to know that God doesn't leave us alone to face these challenges by ourselves. He has given us access to Him through prayer so that our faith can be strengthened and our hearts comforted. And this is what Jesus is addressing in the passage of Scripture we'll be reading from this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. That's Luke chapter 18. Verses 1 through 8. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8 says the following. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So my goal for this morning and the title of our message is Suffering Leads Us to Jesus. Suffering Leads Us to Jesus. But the goal, my goal for our sermon and our time together this morning is to help you see that God wants all injustice and suffering that you experience to cause you to turn to Jesus. Okay, God wants every injustice, hardship, trial, or suffering that you experience to cause you to turn to Him. And the reason why God wants you to come to Him is because of our shared fallen condition. And that is that every one of us is determined to alleviate our own suffering through our own means. Every single one of us. So in this passage, Jesus is giving instructions to His disciples concerning how it is that they should deal with injustice until the time that He returns. His return is the backdrop for Jesus telling this parable. We see that in the last sentence of verse 8, 
It ties this parable to Jesus' teaching about his second coming in the latter part of chapter 17. Now, Jesus is also teaching his disciples here about what life in the kingdom will be like. What would life in God's kingdom will be like as he ushers it between the time of his first coming and the time of his second coming, the time that we live in now, basically. So beginning in verse 1, Luke plainly states the reason why Jesus told this parable. The first reason is that they should always pray. That is, that they should always be constantly engaging God and turning to Him for everything. And the second is that they would not lose heart, the Bible says. And this is in the sense that they would not despair or that they would not relinquish all hope or begin to doubt their faith in God. And this meant that they should continue to trust in God even when things don't look good or when things don't seem to be getting any better. One of the interesting features of this text is that the text itself tells us why it was put here. You don't see that too often in Scripture. It says so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is why Jesus told them them this parable. And it was important for him to do so. It was important for Jesus to teach this because he knew the disciples would suffer many injustices because they were followers of Jesus. He knew that they would suffer many things, not only because of their faith, but also because of what this life in the kingdom would be marked by, by pain and suffering and injustice. This parable has two main characters, as we've noted. There is a judge and there is a widow. And Jesus said that the judge did not fear God and he did not respect man. Now, the first question that comes to mind is what bearing does that have to this story? What does fearing God and respecting man have anything to do with what Jesus is talking about? Well, it seems that if this judge respected his fellow human beings, he may have given justice to this woman a lot sooner. And he also would have done it for the right reasons. And if he feared God, he would have been concerned before God that he refused to help one of the most helpless in society, a widow. God cares about the helpless in society. So in a way, Jesus is alluding to the very basic requirements that are needed to be a judge. And that is to fear God as the ultimate judge and to respect others as we desire to be respected ourselves. To fear God and to respect others. You know, recently, I also ride a bike, and so that's why I'm really acquainted with Kevin and what he was doing that morning when he got hit by a car. Recently, I was taking a drive over one of the really, well, a ride, I should say, over one of the real wealthy neighborhoods of our town, of Santa Clarita. And the guy I was riding with told me, hey, you see this house over here? This house belongs to a very prominent Christian who's very wealthy and affluent. You know, I started riding. We were just riding up this hill. His house was on a hill. And I just was riding and riding. I'm like, this house never ends. You know, it was like, I, it seemed like I had ridden a couple of blocks. It's probably because I'm slow and we were going uphill, but this house never ends. And I, in my mind, I started thinking like, wow, this guy is a Christian. This guy lives this way and is a believer. And in my mind and in my heart, I started to judge him and think this guy can't be a Christian. And I remember even making some comment to the other guys I was riding with like, yeah, I'm sure he's living on mission. And I think, man, there isn't much fear of God at that very moment. There wasn't much fear of God in my heart because there are many ways that I don't live on mission and I fail. And so I did not live up to this standard of fearing God and respecting my fellow man and really acknowledging my own sinful identity. 
But the text says that there was also a widow in this city. And she kept coming to the judge asking for justice. So she was in great distress. She was suffering as a result of the injustice that had been committed against her. We don't know what that is exactly. But something had been done to her and she was suffering and she was in great distress. She was persistent in her plea for this judge to give her justice and she would not stop. She would not relent. She just kept coming back to him and said, give me justice. Give me justice. In early Roman cultures, people were allowed to bring their complaints directly to a judge for them to decide their matters. Because we see that she has apparently access unfettered access to this judge. And so we know that in these times, there were magistrates or judges that were, that were appointed to oversee the affairs of the people. And oftentimes, these judges would accept bribes in return for a favorable ruling. So this is potentially one of the reasons why this judge did not give her justice. She had nothing to offer him. She was a widow. She didn't have much in terms of resources, but what she did have was the ability to be persistent. So she continuously asked the judge for justice against her adversary. Now, we don't know, again, who her adversary was and what was the nature of the dispute, but that's not really significant here because Jesus, as the storyteller, told the parable with enough details to suit the idea that he was trying to illustrate. The judge continuously refused to give her justice. This is one of the things that we see in this text. Now, why? We don't know for certain. But we do know that the judge didn't respect his fellow man, as the text says. He obviously didn't care for her and was probably a selfish man who potentially used his position for selfish gain. Isn't that interesting? That we're, when we have been given authority or prestige or influence or power, one of the ways that we tend to corrupt that and distort that is to use that for our own selfish gains. But as people who live in light of the gospel, we should use that to propagate and to further God's purposes, to further justice, to further peace, to further love and mercy. And this judge wasn't doing any of that. He obviously didn't care for her. And he was probably just a selfish guy who was into himself. He didn't stand to gain anything by giving her justice. In fact, he himself acknowledged that he did not fear God or respect man. And he goes on to imply that if he did, he may have given her justice. It's almost the implication of the text. So he finally decides to hear this widow because she kept bothering him is what he says. The judge finally decided to give her justice so that she would leave him alone. He didn't want to be bothered by her. He saw her as a bother. He says, I will give her justice so that she would not beat me down by her continual coming. He was frustrated at how persistent she was and how she continuously kept coming to him. Now, he uses the word beat me down. Now, is this judge worried that this widow is going to actually beat him up, literally? The word beat here is used, it's, it's in a physical sense, but the context seems to indicate that it is used figuratively. Like, she's going to wear me away. She keeps coming. She's going to beat me down. She's going to wear me away down to nothing. That was his fear, and that's why he gave her justice. And at this point in the, in the story, Jesus draws the attention of his disciples to the words of the judge. 
This is what the judge says. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So Jesus asks his disciples to hear. He says, will you hear? Will you take notice of what the judge is saying? Implying that they should pay close and careful attention to this. Why? Why does he do this? You see, Jesus wants to make an argument. He wants to make an argument that says something like this. If a lousy judge like this guy will do justice, our good God will certainly also do justice. If this guy who is crooked and corrupt and is out for himself will do justice and will give this poor widow justice, how much more not God who loves the poor and loves the downtrodden, who is just, He's basically saying if this selfish judge gave justice to a helpless widow he didn't care about because she bothered him too much, how about God? He is a good judge. You better believe he's going to give justice to those he loves when they cry out to him. Not because they bother him like the judge in this parable, but because he loves them. He will give justice and he will do it for the right reasons. Jesus said, that God will give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. This is why he told his disciples that they should persist in prayer and that they should have a hopeful faith. Because I will give you justice. If you cry out to me day and night, I will give justice to you. Your cries will be answered. God will respond no matter what it is that you're going through. God will ultimately bring justice. And he also says that he will not take long, that God will not take long to give them justice, but will give justice to them speedily. Jesus asked, will he delay long over them? Will God delay long? Will he tarry long over them? It may seem that Jesus is implying that God will delay in granting justice. It could be seen in that sense. But we cannot know for sure because it's very difficult to determine the use of the wording in the original language. What we do know is that we generally can't wait for anything, right? We want everything yesterday. We are too impatient and we can't get things soon enough. But God is obviously not bound by time or by our timing or by our whims. So what we may consider to be a delay in God's timing, it's actually precise. It's actually perfect and it came just at the right time. In spite of whatever delay we may perceive, God sees it as something that happened really fast. He, he doesn't see himself as acting, as taking long to actually bring justice. He does it speedily. Jesus also asks if he will find faith on earth when he comes. That's kind of interesting because if you just read that passage without the backdrop of chapter 17, you're like, well, why is he asking this? Why is he asking if I will find faith when I come? And it may seem like something that he says in passing, but it's actually very important to what he is teaching. Why does he ask this? Well, because he knows that every one of us is prone to trust ourselves, our money, or others to seek relief from injustice and suffering. He knows that. He knows that we will turn to others and to something else other than Jesus when we're going through something that is difficult. 
we are all prone to lose faith in God in times of trouble. Isn't that the case? Jesus knows that our suffering in this world is often too great and great enough to cause us to despair if we're not praying to God to strengthen our faith. If we're not seeking God in those times, he knows that we are prone to despair. And this is why he's telling this to them. Because he loves them. Because he loves us. And this is why the scripture is here. To encourage us to turn to him. So what kind of faith is Jesus hoping to find here? What does he mean when he says, hey, when I return, will I find this kind of faith? Will I find faith on this earth? Is this a simple and generic, I believe in God type of faith? You know, the one that most people have, oh yeah, I believe in God. Is that what Jesus is expecting to find when he comes back? Or is he talking about a life-shaping, all-consuming faith that drives every part of us forward and drives every part of us to Jesus? Jesus is asking whether he will find persistent faith like that of the widow in the parable. Relentless faith. Faith that never gives up. Faith that never loses heart. A faith that leads his children to continual prayer, even when it seems that they are not getting justice or that they are suffering wrongfully. You suffered wrongfully? You feel like there isn't justice? God wants you to respond to that in faith. This kind of faith is found in a person that turns to God first and refuses to become discouraged or depressed even when things are hard and they don't seem to be getting better. This is not, I just got to buckle up and just do it. This is, don't you see? You have hope in Jesus. He is your hope. There isn't any hope for suffering, for injustice outside of him. So why does Jesus end this parable by speaking about his return? And that is because he's teaching them how they should handle all of the injustice, all of the suffering, trials, or anything else that may challenge their faith until the time that he returns. He's teaching them how it is that they should respond to these things until the time when he comes back. He knows that the stress and pressures of suffering will tempt us to forget that Jesus will end all suffering and all injustice when he returns. For it is at this time that God will do complete and total justice at the return of Jesus Christ. And it is up to this point, whenever that will be, that followers of Jesus must be continuously praying, we must continuously be hoping, and must be continuously trusting in Jesus to make everything right that is wrong in this world. So how do we apply this passage to our lives? What does God want us to know? What does he want us to believe more deeply and do as a result of this passage? The first thing is that he wants, he wants us to know, the first thing that he wants us to know is that every single one of you here will be subjected to all sorts of injustice, suffering, and hardship in an unjust and broken world. Now, I don't have to labor long to convince you of that, right? You're pretty much convinced of that already because if you have lived life at all, you would have experienced trials and suffering. 
You see, every single human being who has ever lived has suffered. And they've suffered in this life because human nature is sinful. And sin brings suffering with it. Christians are not immune to the suffering of this world. You know, sometimes in our evangelism, we tend to, we, we tend to lead people to believe that, Jesus is going, that this life is going to be great after they come to faith in Christ. That they're not going to have any hardships or any trials or any sufferings. Now, it's going to be great because we know that we have hope. We know that we can trust in Jesus. So we're not immune to the suffering of this world. In fact, Christ warned many times that his disciples would suffer. Not only because of their faith, because they did suffer because of their faith, right? But also because of the generally broken state of creation. Because this world, as Romans 8 says, is subjected to futility. If Christ suffered, then all who are in Christ will also suffer. Every single human being that has ever lived has suffered. Now know this. Your sinful nature will lead you to turn to someone or something other than God for refuge and for help. Okay? You guys get that? Your sinful nature will cause you to turn to somebody else other than Jesus. Because that is the propensity of our hearts. God created us with a dependence on Him for all things. But sin distorts our ability to see our need for Him and leads us to believe that we don't need God. It leads us to believe that we can solve our problems on our own. Or that we can turn to other people for help. And that they could solve our problems. That they will be our refuge. That they will be our rescuers. Or maybe our sin leads us to believe that maybe God can't help us. That He can't or won't hear us. Maybe it is that He doesn't care or is unable to help for some reason. So the natural result, the natural outflow and propensity and inclination of our hearts is that we would look for God replacements. That is anything that we have set our hopes on other than Jesus. The Bible calls this idolatry. Idolatry is anything that has captured our hopes, our affection, and our trust more than God. It is an idol. John Calvin said that our hearts are are an idol factory. And this, in times like these, is when God wants us to turn to Him more so than anybody or anything else. God wants us to turn to the only one that can and will ultimately save us from every form of suffering and injustice. And this is why Jesus urged the disciples to pray and to seek Him so that they would not lose faith in God and turn to anyone else or anything else. I'm reminded that Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that humanity would rather worship and serve the creation rather than the Creator. And that is probably the most true in times of despair. We would rather find a way ourselves to pull ourselves by our, up by our bootstraps than turn to God. Please realize that the inclination of our hearts is to turn to anyone or anything other than God. 
Three, God wants us to turn to him and respond with persistent prayer to all of the struggles of life. But we often take another route. Instead of seeking God through prayer, we tend to despair. Maybe we tend to worry. I don't know how I'm going to pay for my my rent or my mortgage next month. I'm out of a job. And that could drive us to despair and to worry. Or maybe our plan or strategy is to try to save ourselves. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who is the first person you think about when you get bad news? Is it Jesus? Who do you talk to the most when you're going through a trial? Is it Jesus? Who do you turn to for help? Who do you seek for comfort and for a sense of peace? Is it Jesus? Jesus wants to be the person you think about first when trouble strikes. The person you talk to the most and the one you turn to for help. Think back to when you were a child. Remember how you always turned to your parents for help? No matter what happened to you, whether you got this little cut. You know, my, my two-year-old son, Lazzie, comes to me all the time. Dad, Band-Aid, Band-Aid. Like, there's nothing there. But Dad, it's just, oh, Dad, this or Dad, that. Or maybe your feelings hurt. I know my daughter does this oftentimes. Daddy Mason said something horrible to me. And they're always coming to us. Whether, you get a, whether they get a cut, their feelings are hurt, their brother hit them. No matter what it is that you're going through or that you were going through as a child, you always turn to mom and dad, right? Mom and dad were your source of comfort and refuge. Now, I'm the father of three kids myself, so that I, I see that in my home every single day. A child's heart, listen to this, a child's heart is naturally trained to seek refuge in the arms of their father and mother. Is it not? And so, we also should train our hearts to naturally seek refuge in God. Just like a child. Just like a child turns to his mom and to his dad for help and for comfort and turns to their loving arms, we should also turn to the loving arms of Jesus. We should train our hearts. Notice that, that we should train them because our hearts are not naturally inclined to do that. The tendency of the human heart is to look to ourselves, to look to our money, our family, our friends, instead of God to save us from suffering and from injustice. And there's nothing wrong with pursuing human means to get out of a situation. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that there's any, you shouldn't do anything. You should just take it. You should just sit there and, and let whatever is happening to you just happen to you. I'm not saying that. But oftentimes we can become too trusting in ourselves or in other people that we neglect to turn to and to trust in God. All of us want to turn to someone. You may run to your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your friend, your husband, your wife, because you want to take refuge in the comfort of your relationship with them. But ultimately, God wants us to turn to him first and continuously because he's the only one who can get us out of the messes of life. 
He can only, he's the only one who can get us through those times. Psalm 46 says that God alone is our refuge and our strength. That he is an ever-present help in times of need. You see, God got us out of the worst mess that we have ever been in. If I were to ask you to think about the worst mess that you've ever been in, you're all going to think about some experience or something that you were caught into, or you know what, I had this one thing some time ago, or what have you. But he got us out of the worst mess that you've ever been in. And I'll tell you what that is. That is a life separated from God. That is the worst mess that you have ever been in. That you were apart from Jesus. That you were unreconciled to God. Now if He can save us from that, He can surely save you from anything lesser. And whatever it is that we go through after that, whatever it is, whatever hardship or suffering that we may be experiencing, He wants it He wants to use it to get us to trust Him, to depend on Him, to have faith in Him and cry out to Him in our time of need, just like you did when you initially, when God initially drew you to Him. What you need right now is the same thing that you needed when you first came to Jesus. You need the gospel. God calls us to persevere in our faith in the middle of our suffering. Okay, Jesus himself knew what it was like to call on God. You know, the author of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who is able to empathize with our weakness because he himself has experienced what it's like to live life in this body and in this flesh. Jesus himself knew what it was like to call on God right in the thick of it. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was captured and he was crucified, Matthew says he was very troubled. And that he even asked God if it was possible for this cup to pass from him. He says, Father, is there any way that we could do this any other way? It is when we are in the middle of the heat in a situation that we should turn to God in prayer. We see that Jesus did this. Because it is then that we will have the most doubts. It's then then that we will question God's goodness and whether he can deliver on his promises. It's in that silence when we say, man, is God listening? Is God hearing me? Does God see what I'm going through right now? Jesus knew that this was true of his disciples, and it is also true of all of us today. It is in those moments that we were going to have doubt, that we're going to have Questions that we're going to question God and His goodness and whether it, it, He can deliver on the promises that He has made to us. Again, we are all prone to lose hope in God when we suffer. This is the reason that Jesus told them this parable. He knows our condition and our inclination to turn to everyone and everything else except God. It may not look good, we may be at the end of our rope, but Jesus is saying, Turn to me, seek me. Have faith in me. Have faith that I will make everything right, just, like, just in the same way that I made you right with God. I will make everything right. Not in your time, but in my perfect timing. I've heard it said that sometimes we ask for grace. You know, oftentimes when we go to God with, when, when a trial and a suffering or hardship, we usually ask God for, for grace of deliverance. God, deliver me from this trial. 
I don't want to experience this anymore. <laughs> but God often responds with, no, I will give you grace of perseverance. I will help you to persevere. I will pull you through the mess instead of pull you out of the mess. Another thing that we see in this text and that this text teaches is that God's people, that you guys are not to seek vengeance, but we are called to suffer patiently while we wait for God to do justice, right? We may become so disillusioned at whatever ordeal we find ourselves in that we may want to take matters into our own hands. If indeed we are suffering wrongly or some, somebody has done something to us. But this is clearly how, not, how we should, how not we, this is clearly not how we should respond. The Bible teaches us that vengeance is of God. Romans 12, 19. That God will ultimately do justice, but that we are to seek Him, that we are to pray, and that we're to have faith in Him. Now this doesn't mean that we can't per- pursue justice through the law, through the courts, when we, when, we are, when we are suffering wrongfully or when somebody is abusing us. But it means that even as we do that, we will still cultivate a patient heart of prayer and faith in God and not just always expect grace of deliverance, but maybe grace of perseverance. Six, we can be confident that God will bring justice for his people. You see that? We can have confidence. We can know that God will ultimately bring justice for his people. Why? Why can I say that so confidently? You see, God has already, God has already responded to the root, okay, to the root of all injustices. He's already responded to it. When sin entered this world through Adam and Eve, it allowed for every form of injustice, for every form of suffering and wrongdoing to also enter this world. Do you not see that? That pain, the pain that you go through in life, the worry, the dejection, the suffering, the injustice is all a result of sin entering this world. And so everything that we experience downstream of that is because of sin. And so Jesus is going to respond to all of this, the, all the injustice, because he's already begun to do so. He's already responded to the problem of sin. There is death because of sin. There's hatred because of sin. And there's murder because of sin. Abuse is also because of sin. Every form of injustice, suffering, and wrongdoing is ultimately tied to sin. But God, in sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, has begun to correct the greatest injustice that has ever been committed. He's corrected By sending Jesus Christ, he's already begun to correct the greatest injustice that has ever been committed. So you have all these tiny little injustices right here on this side, right? But all of these were birthed because of this one great big one over here. And God has already corrected that he's begun to do that by sending Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for sinners, for sin. And he's beginning to reverse the greatest injustice that has ever been committed. And that is our sin against the holy God. You see, God is correcting everything through the gospel. God's justice began on the cross and will be completed when Jesus returns. 
That's why we live in the already, but not yet. It's, God has already begun to do this, but it is yet to be completed. Okay? Lastly, perseverance in prayer will help to strengthen our faith until the Lord returns. Perseverance in prayer will help to strengthen your faith until Jesus returns. He asks, will he find faith? Will the Son of Man find faith? So another thing that Jesus is teaching here is that if we want our faith to last until he returns, we must be given to prayer. How else are we going to sustain our faith if we're not seeking to go back to the source continuously? The pressures of this world will challenge your faith. You lose your job, your faith is challenged. Your children are sick, your faith is challenged. You're sick, your faith is challenged. You're having money troubles, your faith is challenged. Every pressure in this world, every source of heat and stress will challenge your faith. And the question is, how are you How are you going to respond to that? What are you going to do? What kind of patterns are you going to establish in your life from this point forward as a Christian when your faith is challenged, when you go through hardships, sufferings, injustices? So what are we going to do to strengthen our faith and to not lose hope when troubles come? Well, we should pray. And we should cry out to God for help because he listens, because he hears, because he cares. We should place all of our hope in him and not in money because we often do place our hope in money, don't we? You know, if we have some money in the bank, oh, you know what, I lose my job? Nope, no problem. I got it covered for the next six months. Oftentimes, money is our refuge. We turn to it. It'll get me out of whatever problem I'm in. We turn to doctors. Oh man, this doctor's amazing. You can't, you don't, this, he's one of the most respected surgeons in, in all of America. Maybe we turn to lawyers. You know, my lawyer's really good. My lawyer's better than your lawyer. Maybe our friends. Maybe our connections. See, all these things could become replacement gods. Little g. We may turn to all of those things instead of really turning to the one true and living God. Jesus tells us to pray to God in order to sustain faith so that when he returns, he will find us persisting in prayer and he will find a people of great faith. I want to conclude by reminding you that first, creation is broken. We live in a broken world. It is decaying. It has been decaying for the longest time. The fall introduced sin, suffering, pain, and injustice into this world. I want you to know that we live in an in-between time. The already, Jesus has come, has begun to reverse the effects of the fall, but not yet, until he returns again. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet perfected. And because of it, our time on this earth will be marked by suffering because of the broken nature of humanity. 
The difficult situations in life will cause us to doubt our faith, will cause us to distrust God, and to turn to something or someone else other than Jesus. Our hearts will wander away from God. Right? What does the, the hymn say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You see, Jesus is the only hope that we have for justice and for things to be made right. Everything that is wrong in your life, the only hope that you have for it to be made right is Jesus. We have trusted him to make us right with God, right? We've said, God, I can, there's no way I can be right with you apart from what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. I cannot obey you perfectly. I have perfect obedience in Jesus and I stand in him. You're trusting Jesus for your salvation to make you right with God. It's a lot bigger than whatever thing you're going through right now. Not to minimize that, but it's a lot bigger than that. Jesus has made right the wrong that we committed against him. I've heard, I'm not much for quotes. It's probably because I can't remember them. <laughs> My memory is shot. But there's a quote. <clears throat> His name is Gary Rikuchi. He's Rikuchi. He's C.J. Mahaney's brother-in-law, I think. In his book, Love That Last, he says that no harm done to you is greater than the harm that you have caused the Holy Son of God, Jesus, in sending him to the cross. Isn't that fascinating? No harm done to you, nothing that anybody could ever do to you is greater than what you've done to Jesus when you sent him to the cross for your sin. Now see, that shapes, that shapes my thinking. That allows me to not hate you so much when you hurt me. That allows me to not want to get back at you when you do something to me. Why? Because whatever you, it is that you can do to me, I have done to Jesus far worse. And he's made that right. He's corrected that injustice. So he's going to correct every other subordinate injustice. Every other injustice in this world will be corrected at the time of his return. So God wants us to turn to him in troubled times so that our faith can be strengthened and so that when Jesus returns, we will be thriving in prayer and he will find great faith in all of us. Pray with me.